0: My name is Andrew. My wife, Amber, and I have the privilege of leading a community group in East Ventura, and I also have the privilege of serving on the worship team. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus, Titus 1, 1-9 in the NIV. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our savior to Titus my true son in our common faith grace and peace from God the father and Christ Jesus our savior the reason i left you in crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as i directed you an elder must be blameless faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined." He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Once again, good morning, friends. Last week, we started a new series through this New Testament book of Titus uh, Titus, called A Faithful Presence, exploring what it means to know and show Jesus in three specific areas in the home, in our church, and in the world. And today, as we continue to move forward in this book, we come to the issue of leadership leading by example. Let's pray together. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to change us. And if you're new and you're exploring Christian faith, that you would know who Jesus is and what he has done for you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts. Thank you that you not only care about us, but you care about those around us. And therefore, you care about the example that we leave, the impression that we make, the influence that we have upon other people. And so, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to challenge and correct us where there are issues in our character. That wrongly impact others. We also pray that you would encourage us to cultivate the character that you so desire. And as we do, may we remember that it is not by our power, but your power that we can do so. And for those who do not yet know you, I pray that today they would come to know you the grace that you have given in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we all pray. And everyone said, amen. Whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, you are all leaving an example. Is it one to follow or is it one to avoid? This is so often true, especially when, when somebody is you know looking at your life as a model. You all know those times where I had it the other week where I had to drive somewhere and people who needed to get to the same destination didn't have a phone, didn't have GPS. I said, no problem, follow me. And you all know that when you're in the car, disaster can ensue. You get in the car, normally that yellow light, you're quick to step on the gas and run through. You're like, somebody's following me. They need to know how to get to the destination. So I'm gonna slow it down. I'm actually gonna use my indicator light. You're like, is this the washer? What is this? It's to tell people that you're going right or left. You're aware someone in my rear view mirror is following me. Therefore, my decisions not only impact me and whether or not I arrive at the destination safely, but also the people who follow. See, even though you may or may not have a leadership role in whatever sphere of life you are in, and with whatever gifts that you have, we should all lead by example. Now, the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, is writing to a leader named Titus, who was responsible for the church mission in Crete, a very influential city within the Roman Empire in the first century. And one of Titus's tasks was to appoint leaders. And so here, as we study this passage, he's referring to a specific office of leadership within the church. But here's what you need to know. The same principles apply to us all because each one of us leaves an example. Is it one to follow? Does your conduct connect with your conviction? Does your behavior connect Line up with your belief? Or is there a gap? This is so important because, as most of you know, one of the most common accusations against the Christian church is hypocrisy. Do as I say. Not as I do. Just wear the mask, do one thing, say another. It's one of the most common criticisms of the church. You yourself may have the same criticism of the church today. Maybe you're a Christian and you still think of that. Well, it's all full of hypocrites. That is because there is often, sadly, within the Christian church, a gap between what we proclaim to believe and how we actually behave. Paul wants to close that gap. And that is not only true for leaders, it is true for you, every member of the church. And if you don't believe me, believe one Charles Spurgeon, also known as the Prince of Preachers, who preached in the yesteryear of London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He said this, If I am a soldier set to guard the army at a certain point, I know that every post in the whole line of soldiers is important, but I am not to dream that mine is not so. If so, I may be inclined to sleep, and the foe may surprise the camp at the point which I ought to have guarded. I am to feel as if the whole safety and the entire camp depended on me. At least I ought to be as zealous and as watchful as if it were so. It would be very easy to say, well, they lead this or they serve in that area. I'm not there, so therefore I don't need to watch my life in the same way. You might even think that about leaders within the church. And so though Paul's instructions here in Titus 1 are about a specific leadership office in the church, the character and the qualities that he lists out should mark every believer. And here's why. To put it in a statement. The followers of Jesus must never act as though they were only responsible for themselves. You, if you follow Jesus, you must never act in such a way that you don't think you're not responsible for other people. Now, I often hear this phrase, well, leaders are called to a higher standard. You might even have used that phrase. But I'm not actually sure that that carries the right idea. On the one hand, a leader has a public role, and so their character can impact many people. And in that sense, it might be better to say that leaders are held to a broader accountability. For example, if I screw up big time, it not only affects me and my family and my friends, it affects the whole church. I am publicly held accountable. But it's not as though I have a different or a higher standard. For example... This passage says a leader doesn't get drunk, but that doesn't mean that you get to get drunk. (laughs) A leader is told to be faithful in marriage. where you can't say, well, that's for leaders. I can be unfaithful, you know, like it's a lower standard. No, 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 no. Yes, for a leader, there's greater accountability, but we all share the same standard. Because every one of us, we impact the lives of others to a greater or lesser degree, and therefore, we must give attention to our character. There shouldn't be a gap between our confession, what we proclaim to believe, and how we behave. Paul wants to close that gap that we might leave an example for others. And when we do, it is a powerful force. So, from this passage, simply, I want us to see the need for a good example, the marks of a good example, and the source of a good example. First, we see in this passage the need for a good example. Titus was involved in these gospel efforts in Crete. And earlier, an unknown reason called Paul, who was a a church planter and an apostle, he was called from the front lines of these efforts before they were fully organized. Titus is his man on the ground and his man for the job. And so he says in verse 5, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Which might seem very simple, but it's also remarkable advice. See, Crete, like let's say California for example, was a place where all kinds of worldviews and philosophies and beliefs and religions would pass through and they would leave their mark. But he doesn't say, hey, leave that pagan place. Get out of that dark place. Nor does he say, just be yourself, Titus. Be yourself. He doesn't say that. He says, live faithfully for Jesus in that place place and make sure that leaders do the same. Because when the leaders do the same, the people will do the same. It was strategic for Paul to flourish where he lived. It was strategic for Titus to flourish in his faith where he lived. It was strategic for the church to be in a place like Crete, just like it is strategic for us to be here for such a time as this in Ventura County. And a vital ingredient to this faithful presence is good leadership and good examples. Why? Because good examples are a part of gospel mission. The people around us need a visual aid for the gospel. Good examples point people in the right direction. You might tell your coworker or your neighbor or your friends about Jesus Christ. You might tell them about the change that that he brings in your life, but they're gonna look to you. What does that look like? How does it work out? What does it mean to have your life changed by Jesus? A good example is a part of gospel mission. And that is particularly true of leaders. So he says, appoint elders. Titus, some things are lacking in the church, needs to be organized. You've got to appoint elders. What are elders? Well, elder here does not speak of seniority of age. It speaks of oversight. It's often used alongside the word overseer and is sometimes grouped with the verb pastor. This is slightly confusing Because in our culture, in North America, though not in many other places, we would refer to this office as someone who is a pastor, like you might refer to someone like me. But in the New Testament, all but one time, the word pastor is always used as a verb. It's an action, to to shepherd. In fact, men and women in the church were actually called to pastor one another, lowercase p. We shepherd one another. We care for one another. But the office, the term for the office, is Elder. We don't commonly use elder in our vernacular. When I say elder, most people think of older people or Mormons, right? So it's a little confusing. I I grant you that. But this is the biblical term, it means overseer. That's the actual title. Now, what do they do? They guard, they guide, and they govern in the church. Now, we'll get there in a moment. Titus doesn't get into the particular responsibilities. Here, Paul, when he's writing to him, doesn't address all of that like he does in his letters, say, to Timothy elsewhere in the New Testament. But it is very clear that we learn from Paul that God intends for the church to have overseers. Some might be full-time, some might be part-time, some might be volunteers. Whatever it might be, elders are necessary in the church. There are other positions as well that are also necessary in the church But for Titus, these offices were lacking. See, without leaders, things begin to drift, and that is not good. Good leadership helps things flow in the right direction, and their task was to teach the churches and to make sure the mission was going forth in the city. Some things were unfinished. They needed completion. Things were gonna go off if these elders weren't appointed. We see the need for elders who set a good example. But good examples are needed all around us. Good examples are needed of the youngest to the oldest for all the people within the church. People need to see what it is that we are talking about. They need to look at your life. They need these visual aids for the gospel. It is important to Paul. It should be important to us so that we would take stock and think okay, the people around me need an example. It's not as though I'm just supposed to do like a drive by, throw a little gospel track in their mailbox, and like get out of town before they ever see me. They need to see my life, watch my life, they need to see how. I've changed. My children need to see the change that takes place in my life. Friends, have you thought about your life in terms of the example that you leave? You might be married. You might be single. What's the example you're leaving to those who are closest around you? Many of you are parents. What is the example that you're leaving for your children? You think about your place of work. You're setting an example. You say, well, I've only got my job for you know, a few years or I'm transitioning. No problem. But what is the example that you will leave when you leave that job? People are looking. People are watching. We need visual aids for the gospel. We need good examples. This is true of leaders. But this is also true for every single one of you. But you might say, what type of example? What does that mean? What are the qualifications for this particular leadership role called elder? But also, what are the qualities that apply to me? Well, great question. That's the second point. First, we see the need for a good example. But secondly, in Titus 1, we see the marks of a good example. And here, we're provided with the guidelines for the selection of these leaders. And the accent falls on their character. So notice, we don't so much have a job description for the elders of the church, we have a character description. Here's why I think that is so important. We live in a culture, particularly in the United States, and it's a culture that even exists in the church where we often value charisma far above character. If they're really gifted, if she's a good speaker, if he can get things done, it doesn't really matter that they have immorality in their life. It doesn't really matter if they're verbally abusive to other people. Like, look at how powerful they are. This gets a little uncomfortable when we start talking about it in the church. Oh, it doesn't matter, like the elder, yeah, like he's a total drunk, but man, his sermons are on point. You're like, yeah, you don't get to bifurcate. We often value gifting over character. This really came to light in my own life. I've shared this before, but it's worth repeating. I was given my first sabbatical years ago and I had to do some reflecting for a few months and I was journaling through like how I had been operating, how I'd been behaving, what was going on in my life at the time, it was about 10 years ago. And at the end of my sabbatical, I took all that I'd learned in my journaling and I decided to put everything I learned into two categories, strengths and weaknesses. And all of my strengths were giftings and all my weaknesses were character issues. And then the Holy Spirit's like, show your wife. And I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) So I show my wife and I'm like, is this true? And she's like, "Mm, yep. I'm like, Lord, why'd you have me do that? Everything was looking so good. (laughs) God doesn't value gifting over character. And so we must pay attention. It's commonly believed that those two are like separate. You know, there's two spheres of life. Just like we say, there's the, there's the personal and then there's the professional. Or if you've seen The Godfather, it's not personal, it's business. We like to separate our lives into these little categories, but it should not be so in the church. So I want us to walk through this list and think in terms both of elders, that is leaders in the church, but also every single one of us. Because this teaching is actually built upon what Jesus himself says about service and leadership and humility. He says in verse six through eight, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So here we have the character description for an elder with application to every follower of Jesus, whether you hold the office or not. But it begins with this terrifying word, blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? It's important to clarify that blameless does not mean sinless. Otherwise, I would be disqualified and so would you. Can I get an amen? amen. And those of you that didn't say amen, you just sinned. So you're in with us <laughs> together. Because you're lying and lying and it's a sin. <laughs> if blameless meant sinless, like it's over for us all. What the word means when it says blameless is that there is no outstanding charge of offense laid against you. Meaning, if you had sin, let's say you wronged someone else in the church. Let's say you stole from someone else in the church. and You're like, hey, I'm interested in being raised up as an elder. Let's say it was me. Like, hey guys, I want to be an elder at Reality Ventura. You're like, hey, so people in the church, Tim, said that you've been stealing from them. Like, yeah, so what? Have you heard me preach? Like, <laughs> like, yeah, that's not okay. Like, yeah, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, but you never repented. Oh, do I need to repent? (laughs) You never apologize. Apologies, they're overrated, right? (laughs) See, blameless doesn't mean that you've never sinned. To be blameless means there's not an outstanding charge of offense that is laid against you. The point is, when you wrong someone, or when you sin, you are quick to repent, you are quick to apologize, receive forgiveness from God, and move forward. As you do that, you are blameless. Good character is not the absence of mistakes, it's how we respond to them. If good character meant we never made mistakes, like who is up for that? Some of you are like, Well, I don't make mistakes. And your spouse is like, Well, let me remind you. <laughs> Good character is not the absence of mistakes. It's how we respond to them. And the same is true of leadership. Now, here's why Paul is so direct concerning overseers, elders. The minister cannot oversee the household of God if he cannot oversee his own life. And so he starts out more broadly. He talks about marriage and children. First of all, marriage. Is the marriage healthy? Are they faithful in their marriage? Now, this does not exclude those who are single if they were to hold the office of an elder. Marriage is assumed, not commanded. After all, Paul was single. And to be Captain Obvious, Jesus was single. But if the elder is married, how's the marriage? It literally means a one-woman man. And this would refer to all areas of faithfulness. There's no pornography. There's no infidelity. Is there faithfulness in the marriages of leaders? Is there faithfulness in the marriages of the church? Not perfect marriages. Faithful marriages. Marriages where when sin happens, they're quick to repent, quick to move forward, continuing to grow. And then they move to the children. Are they faithful? Now, this does not mean that the child of every leader will automatically become a believing adult. Listen, scripture never says that parents are responsible for saving their children, parents are responsible for pointing their children to the Savior. If you're a parent, that is your job because you cannot save your children. Can I get another amen? amen. Some of you, that was real hearty. You're like, Ah, oh, who could save my child? Only God can. <laughs> Have you seen him this morning? <laughs> We're never told to save our children. We are told to point them to the one who can save them. That means we are to be faithful in how we order our homes according to our faith. That means we're faithful to pray with them and for them and over them and point them to Scripture so that they know their Savior. And when they're adults, they ultimately have to make their own choice. But we must be faithful to point them to Jesus. And as long as children are in the household under the parents' care, they are to be pointed to Jesus and to sound doctrine as we order our homes according to what we believe. See, Paul here, he's looking for overall patterns. He's not saying, did you ever screw up? He's looking for patterns of faithfulness. And it all comes from this idea that he brings up in verse 7, when he mentions an overseer manages God's household. It's interesting to think of the church as the household of God, which means for all who serve in the church, particularly of the office of an elder, but also for anyone in the church. We are to think of ourselves as stewards. A steward in the ancient world was not an owner. A steward was responsible for managing something that they did not own. And that is true for every single one of us. So what does it mean to be a steward? We're all called to be good stewards. It means at least four very simple things. Stewardship should be a way of life. And it comes from the understanding that number one, God owns everything. Secondly, I'm entrusted with some of those things. Third, I'm going to give an account for those things. And fourth, therefore, I should be faithful with those things. That's stewardship. God owns everything, He's given me some of those things. It could be your gifting, your ability. The the children you have, the marriage you have, the friends you have, the family you have, whatever it might be, I've given some of those things. And one day I will be held accountable for them. I will have to give an account for how I manage those things. And therefore I must be faithful with these things. See, we are all to look at what we have in life and in the church as stewards, not owners. Stewards are not thinking about what is owed to them, but what has been given to them. See, oftentimes, you know, one of the attitudes that'll kill a church, I'll tell you right now, it's entitlement. Well, how come, the, how come they're not doing it? How come I don't have this? How come I don't have that? Listen, you're a steward, not an owner. Stop acting like an owner. God owns everything. He saved us. We belong to him. Everything he gives us is a gift of his grace, and we're to be responsible and faithful with it. A steward is, is, is not thinking what is owed to them, but what has been given to them. A steward goes around their duties in a way that fits with their master's desire. And so, friends, in the church, this is the household of God, and we are stewards. And so we are to be faithful. This is true of leaders, but it is also true of everyone. So now he gets real practical. Like, what does it mean? How do I live and function as a good steward so that I can be a good example? Well, he goes on to describe a list. I'll put it into two categories. Vices we must kill. And virtues we must cultivate. So, we're gonna read this list. This is the, the character qualification that Paul is looking for when he tells Titus to appoint elders. But again, these qualities apply to everyone within the church public character and conduct. Notice what he doesn't list here, he doesn't say they have to be unbelievably gifted. Now, in other places, he says, well, an elder, of course, they must teach. But doesn't say he has to have, like, better talents than anyone else. He focuses on character. So Paul tells the leader and us all how we are to grow. So first, as you're looking at that, there are five vices we must kill in our lives. The first is arrogance. Is our character marked by arrogance, belligerence? An unwillingness to listen. To be overbearing. Does that define us? Christians should lead in a way that is considerate and humble. He then mentions quick-temperedness. Are we people who are defined by having just an out-of-control temper? Would the people around us say that? See, a follower of Jesus has to be one who's controlling Their responses, one who doesn't have any control over their response, shows no restraint at all and only makes things worse. Drunkenness. Now, not every Christian needs to be a total abstainer from alcohol, but drunkenness is a sin. Is our character marked by drunkenness or substance abuse or addiction? We need to be honest and ask that question. He goes on directly to how our lives impact others with violence. There should be no physical or verbal violence that marks our lives. It shouldn't be true of a leader. It shouldn't be true of anyone within the church. And he concludes with one that is often a more respectable sin. We say, oh, violence, yeah, that shouldn't be there. But greed, Eh, that's not so bad. But he condemns it. In fact, he says someone who wants to be an elder is disqualified if their life is marked by greed. That is looking for selfish profit. Now, there's a particular hazard here for someone employed by the church. There's nothing wrong with being supported by the church. In fact, Paul talks about employment elsewhere. But it is wrong to exploit the church and only look to take advantage of other people. Some people don't do it necessarily for the financial gain, but for the praise. There's a greedy praise. Some leaders, they start out by communicating the gospel, but they end up by only broadcasting themselves. It's all about them. Paul says, Titus, these people that you're considering for the role of an elder, you need to make sure that they're killing these vices. And in the same way, friends, we should be honest and look at our lives and say, do any of these qualities mark us? If so, we need to deal radically with them. It is so easy to coddle our sin. Just say, oh, it's fine. Oh, it's just, you know, the old temper flaring up again. Oh, just a little bit of drunkenness, no problem. But listen, there's only small sins if we have a small God. And therefore, because we have a true, living, huge God, we must deal radically with our sin. Paul tells us elsewhere in the book of Romans to put our sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're gonna leave a good example, we need to kill these vices and allow the Holy Spirit to expose in our own hearts where we might be living in these patterns so that we can turn from them does this describe you? As I have to ask the same question, does this list describe me? But then he turns the corner and he says, okay, you need to cut these things out of your life, but here's what you should pursue. So there's five vices we must kill, but then in this list, there are six virtues we must cultivate. And the first is hospitality. Hospitality meant so much in, in The ancient world because many people would actually come to faith not only through hearing the gospel in an auditorium like this building but in a home where men and women and families would serve whether it was travelers or neighbors or other people in the city because an an open home reflected an open heart like welcoming people in loving them serving them it's more than just you know coffee and a donut although that is certainly a way to serve and love someone am i right (laughs) But it's so much more than that. It's the posture. It's saying, man, I want to be hospitable. I want to look for ways in which I can serve my neighbor in that way. Secondly, he says, lovers of good. That is, you're devoted to the good of other people. That's what the phrase means. You're devoted to what is good for your neighbor. You're devoted to what is good for the people in Ventura County. We should cultivate this. And then in contrast, to the quick-temperedness, he says self-control, evidencing restraint in your life. You know, there's a word that's gone so out of fashion, you, you would rarely hear it, but it's, it's temperance. And when you do, you often hear about it only in regards to perhaps a substance. But here's why I love that word. When you think of your desires that you have in your, in your own heart, some of them might be good, some of them might be bad. And in a culture that tells you that you should always follow your desires no matter what, right? That's the message of the culture. If you want it, do it. The Christian faith teaches us to temper our desires. And the idea, and the reason I love that word is because it comes from working with metals, meaning you'd have this raw piece of metal, but it wasn't fit for use until you took a hammer and you started hammering it in, bending it in according to your purpose. And that is how we should view our desires. That's the idea between self-control. So if you have desires, whether it's lustful desires or greedy desires, you don't get a free pass to just say, well, I, I have that desire and my friend tells me that I should do whatever I want. No, no, no. Self-control means you take that hammer and you're like, okay, there's this raw desire there, but I need to like bend it into shape according to God's word. We need to cultivate Self-control. Uprightness, he says, next, which is about justice and fairness, is the way in which we're conducting ourselves, especially at work. Are we always looking to cut corners or are we looking to uphold what is true and what is good and what is right? He then says holiness. We must cultivate holiness, which is living according to who God is and what God wants that his character would shape ours. And lastly, he says discipline, which is interesting. He puts it last because discipline is a practice that cultivates all of the above. Think of the spiritual disciplines we talk about here at church all the time. Prayer. Well, how can, how can I become hospitable and self-controlled? You got to pray. Another discipline would be reading the word of God. Well, how can I know how to, what uprightness and justice is? Well, you got to read the word of God. It's a discipline. Well, how will I know how to treat one another rightly? Well, you got to get into fellowship and community. These are all what we call classic spiritual disciplines, and they help cultivate all of these virtues. So Paul is telling Titus that potential elders must give evidence that their lives have been being changed by the Holy Spirit. And every believer must bear this fruit as well. Because to one degree or another, we all lead by example. And when we lead by example, and when we show the holiness and this uprightness and the self-control, we are demonstrating the life-changing power of the gospel. It provides compelling evidence to other people that change is possible which leads to the last point. Because you might say, well, how is this possible? It seems so hard. Like, how can I, hospitality and lovers, what of good and uprightness and holiness. Well, how can I find it? Well, that's the third point. We need the source of a good example. See, all the characteristics, all the qualities that should be present and growing in the life of a leader, but also in the lives of every follower of Jesus, they must be there, they must be present, and they must be growing in our lives. But here's how you should think of it. These virtues are not like a bag of marbles. They are like a cluster of grapes. You're like, what in the world does that even mean? Let me explain. Some of you are like, I don't understand. (laughs) These virtues are not like a bag of marbles where you have to go out and find them individually and collect them together and put them in a bag. That's not what these virtues are like. That is often how people think of virtue. Like, oh, I gotta go find some hospitality. Oh, where can I find some uprightness? Maybe I'll find it over here. It's not like a bag of marbles that you have to go individually find and collect and put together. Rather, these virtues are like a cluster of grapes. On the outside, they're all circular. They might even look similar to a bag of marbles. But here's the difference. They all grow from one source, the vine. The vine. They, some of you like, wow. <laughs> I stole that analogy like 15 years ago. Anyway, it makes so much sense, right? From the outside, you're like, oh yeah, I'm seeing the evidences. But on the inside, there's one vine that leads to them all. And friends, that vine is Jesus Christ. We don't go out like, God's like, hey, better go find some virtue. Hey, Tim chaddick I'm looking at you. You need to go find some self-control. Let me know when you find it. All right, Lord Jesus, I'll let you know. It's gonna be a long journey. (laughs) It comes from one source, and that source is Jesus Christ. As we cling to him, these qualities become a reality. Look how Paul ends in verse nine. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now the teaching or the doctrine simply means the teaching of Christ. We are saved by Christ and we are sanctified by Christ. What makes us trustworthy examples is the trustworthiness of Jesus And therefore, Paul's warning is no leader and no believer, for that matter, should ever dilute the gospel or distort the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. You've got to cling to Christ if you want to see these vices killed off in your life and if you want to see these virtues cultivated in your life. It comes from clinging to Christ, It doesn't come from your own moral effort or your own personality or your own ability. And friends, that's good news. And that's why I notice Paul says, hey, potential elder, if you hold fast to the trustworthy message, you can encourage others. How would it be encouraging if all these virtues were only possible if you had a really strong personality? Like, oh, I don't know. The elder in our church is like an ENFJ. So like, I don't know, on the Myers-Briggs, like I could never cultivate his virtues. The only way it's encouraging is if they are pointing you to the source that is available to them. But to be a good example, you must cling first. For whatever we hold fast, that's what we will hold forth. Right? It's like, I've, I travel a lot. I just flew recently. You know, it's, it's the emergency preparation that they tell you that all of us just tune out of. But I always remember one thing. It's the oxygen mask. What do they tell you to do when the oxygen masks drop? If you want to help somebody else, what do you have to do? Put it on. Oh, you guys are so good. You remembered. You have to put the mask on first before you help another. Why? Because if you don't have the oxygen, then you're not going to be very much help to the person who needs it. Without the oxygen, I won't be able to think. I won't be able to function. I would just take the mask. I'd put it on your ear. I'd put it on your head. and be like, ah, because I'm not receiving what I'm offering. We need to put the mask on first. We need to cling to the gospel. We need to hold fast that we might hold forth. Friends, God is not asking you to demonstrate what he does not also provide for you. I was reminded of my very first job when I was 15 and a half. I worked at this restaurant. The food was so good. But the lame thing is my owners of the restaurant, they would never give me an employee meal. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to feel sorry for That's That's when everyone goes, oh, Tim. Listen, every night for hours, I was serving a meal. And it looked so good. And I would like give it to the table. And the people would be like, this looks good. I'm like, yeah, It does. Like, you never want your server to say that. Like, can I sit with you? Like, I'll bet it's good. And you just stand there like, how is it? Is it as good as I imagine it to be? Because, you know, the owners, they don't, they don't feed me here. You know, I'm not bitter. The Lord is doing a work in my heart. But listen, I was giving away what I myself didn't have. And a lot of people struggle in the Christian life because they think they've got to do all the, I got to give away, but I don't receive. Friends, that is a lie. Everything you need comes from holding fast to Jesus. And as a result, you can then demonstrate that to the world. The way to lead well is to be well-led. And there is no greater leader than Jesus Christ. And he invites you. He says, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you now. And as you let me lead you, Christ says, you can then lead other people. You can be an example to other people. Cling to Christ. So we need to ask this morning, are my steps leading people in the direction of hope and Christ and life? Or are my steps leading to danger and death and darkness? We need to ask these questions and then come to Jesus who will lead us by filling us with his Holy Spirit, producing these qualities within us. Think about who we have in Jesus. He's the ultimate leader. He gave his all for you. Jesus came into this world. He adjusted his steps for you all the way to the direction of the cross where though he was sinless, he died for your sin and for my sin. And he rose again on the third day to give us new life so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be restored, so that we could be renewed, so that we would not only be changed by this message, but that we could offer this life-changing message to other people. Amen? Friends, this is the beautiful role, not just of offices and leaders in the church, but of every believer. And when we show that example of Christ, it is powerful. My old friend just the other week that I hadn't seen in over 20 years, he was catching up and he was asking me what was going on in my life. And he said this phrase to me. He said, wow, you really got your life together. And I stopped. I was like, oh no, 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 no. I told him, I was like, no, you remember how I was. I didn't get my life together. I met Jesus, and Jesus put my life together. All of these things that you've seen in my life, friend, these are all the results of Jesus. I had nothing, I was the worst. Jesus changed me, but my life in that moment as I was with him just the other week was a visual aid. He's like, wow, if you can change, and let me guarantee you, that was was a big deal. If you could change, I could change. I'm like, it's all because of Jesus. Friends, you can lead well if you are well led and there's no greater leader than Jesus. So will you let him lead you now? Let's pray together because we have an opportunity for him to lead us even in this moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is through Christ that we can leave a good example, a visual aid for the people around us. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we're forgiven when we leave bad examples as we confess and trust anew and afresh in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God, today, remind us that we have everything we need in Christ. And so I pray that right now, we would be led by you. Lord Jesus, you want to lead us in confession and repentance. I pray that we would not resist your leading, but be led by you. I pray that by your spirit, you would identify areas, character issues or patterns in our lives that you want to address and you want to stop. The vices, the sins in our lives, you want to stop. And I pray that we'd listen to your voice and not harden our hearts and continue in our sin. So Father, I pray As you are identifying those areas in our lives, we would be quick to listen to you and say, yes, Lord, I see that. I repent of that. I turn from that. And I pray that you would lead us in receiving from you forgiveness, direction, the power of your Holy Spirit, all available to us free of of charge. As we receive from you, you turn us into those examples you want us to be. So God, I pray that this time now that we have to respond would not be a time of looking to ourselves, but beyond ourselves to you. Not thinking, oh, I'm gonna go beat myself up or I'm gonna go try harder, that we would come to you for what we need. Spirit of God, would you move? And if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ, I pray that right now, they would believe that right now they would say from their heart, Jesus, save me. No one else can save me. No one else can change me from the inside out. No one else can forgive me of my sin. No one else can give me eternal life. I pray that they would believe right now, not spend another day without you. As we sing, as we pray, as we respond, may your Holy Spirit move. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.